And thank you all for being here with us this morning. We appreciate you coming out on a kind of a rainy, gloomy Sunday morning to spend this Lord's Day with us. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're especially glad you're here this morning. Thank you for being here with us. I uh, want to announce this morning our grandson was born on Tuesday uh, for Cheryl and myself. His name is Reed Wilson Hitchcock. He was born on Tuesday. It's our third grandchild and uh, very exciting for our family, a great blessing for us. And those of you with grandchildren know how wonderful it is. We're very grateful to God. He's strong and he's healthy, and our daughter-in-law, Natalie, is doing very well. We're very grateful to God for that. I like what somebody said once. They said, all grandchildren are beautiful and brilliant and obviously take after their grandmother. And I like that. And hopefully that's true of him, uh, that he'll do that. Um, we're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Peter. So if you'll take your Bible and uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're in a series called Still Standing. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 4 this morning, uh, Lord willing. Uh, by the way, next week we'll be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, uh, which is a passage about elders. It's really one of the three main New Testament passages about eldership and the church and leadership. So um, if you kind of wonder who these elders are and what we're supposed to be doing, uh, you can come back next time and you can see uh, why we have elders in the church and what their function is supposed to be. Uh, but this morning we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and I want to bring a message from these verses I've titled, Don't Be Surprised. And I think you'll see that this is a very important, very relevant passage for today. And it's just striking to me always as I study Scripture how up-to-date and contemporary the Bible really is. So Peter writes these words inspired by the Spirit. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what shall become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right." Well, may the Lord add his blessing this morning to the reading of his word. There's uh, two brothers once that got into a fight with each other, and uh, hearing the commotion from a distance, the mother came in to break up the scuffle and, and find out what was going on. And after scolding both of them, she said, all right, who started it? Uh, who delivered the first blow? And uh, finally, the younger brother spoke up and said, I hit him back before he hit me. <laughs> now, Probably he'd learned that from experience, maybe, with his older brother. That was a good thing to do. But uh, certainly that's a young man who didn't want to be taken by surprise. He anticipated what was coming, and he was ready for it. And I think in the same way today as Christians in this culture, we need to anticipate uh, persecution and suffering at the hands of an unbelieving world. Uh, we need to anticipate the blows of the enemy and not be surprised when they hit us. 
Um, if you know anything about the New Testament and uh, the, the Gospels, you'll know that the New Testament instructs us again and again to expect opposition and persecution and pushback for what we believe as Christians. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. In John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So many people today, even Christians, want to be loved by this world, and certainly we don't want to do things, extra things, that bring the ire of this world, but the world will hate us if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for Him. And 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so when we come to chapter 4 and verse 12 of 1 Peter, Peter echoes the same sentiment, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, he's saying, don't be surprised when the world persecutes you. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us persecution comes with the territory. It's par for the course. Uh, you and I should expect it. I mean, after all, our leader, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was crucified. I mean, he was rejected by this world in the most brutal and cruel of ways. And if we look anything like Jesus, this world will hate us. If we love God, the world is going to hate us. And after all, when you think about it, the symbol of Christianity is a cross. So we shouldn't be surprised as followers of Jesus that we too will suffer persecution. Uh, more and more in our culture today, we're the, what we might call the master's minority. But again, that's nothing new because believers have been hunted and hounded and harassed throughout church history. And still today in our world, in many, many places, Christians are being led like lambs to the slaughter. Uh, the World Evangelical Alliance released this statement here just uh, not long ago, and it says this, persecution of Christians is the largest human rights violation in the world today. And just kind of pause there for a moment and just say, you know, you rarely hear about it though, right? I mean, this is the largest human rights violation in the world today. It goes on to say over 200 million Christians in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. It's estimated that approximately 176,000 Christians were martyred from mid-2008 to mid-2009. So just in that one-year period, 176,000 believers were martyred. It says if current trends continue, it is estimated that by 2025, an average of 210,000 Christians will be martyred annually. So six years from now, 210,000 believers will, will, will give their lives for Christ. So that's the world we live in. Now, by the providence and the mercy of God in America, we've been largely sheltered and shielded uh, from that. But there's a cultural shift that's taking place in our nation. The winds of change are blowing there's an epic cultural change that's sweeping our country. It's a, a spiritual climate shift. 
We hear a lot today about climate change, but there's certainly a spiritual climate change that's taking place in our country today. There's a growing hostility against Christians, and we no longer enjoy a home field advantage in this country. And more and more, we find ourselves as believers swimming against the tide. I mean, if you preach the gospel and you practice the morality and the ethics of the Bible, it puts you on a collision course with Scripture. Um, Our friend uh, Philip DeCourcy puts it like this, the Christian who preaches the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is labeled a bigot. Uh, The Christian who opposes gay marriage is called homophobic. The Christian who questions the transgender agenda is called hateful. The Christian who espouses the biblical record of creation is pegged as anti-intellectual. The Christian who questions the growth of governmental power is considered antisocial. The list goes on, but the point is simple. Winds of social and ethical change are blowing across America, and they're blowing into the faces of Bible-believing Christians. We all see that today. We sense it's happening. So increasingly in our culture today, Christians are kind of the pinatas of society, uh, cultural outsiders, kind of pushed out to the margins, if you will. It's kind of open season to mock and scorn and vilify believers. So the question for us this morning is, what do we do in light of this? How do we respond? Uh, Do we just give up? Uh, Do we collapse in despair and just kind of retreat from the broader culture? Uh, Do we become angry and hostile and vindictive against the culture? What do we do in a society that's increasingly hostile to Christ and to Christians? Well, our passage this morning, again, written all the way back in the early A.D. 60s, relates to us today in incredibly practical ways. And I see in these verses before us four key things that you and I are to be doing in this time in which we find ourselves today. And all all four of these words begin with the letter R. You can see that in your outline there this morning. So let's start in verse 12. The, The first thing we need is a good dose of realism. So that's our first R. We need to be realistic. We need to have a a realistic view of things. Now, you'll notice Peter begins in verse 12, beloved. I love that term of endearment there. Peter loves these people, and he knows they're undergoing some difficulty and struggle, so he calls them here beloved. They're people uh, the apostle Peter loves. And then he says to them, don't be shocked or surprised or think it strange when you suffer persecution for being a Christian. In other words, you and I should expect the world's hostility and harassment. Don't be surprised, notice he says, at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, when he says the fiery ordeal, some people think this believes he's referring to martyrdom or Christians being burned alive, but there's no evidence in 1 Peter that was taking place. In 1 Peter, the persecution they're suffering is more verbal. It's not physical attacks. It's it's more verbal and societal. In fact, uh, if you look back in chapter 3, verse 9, he talks about insults. In chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about being slandered. Here in chapter 4 and verse 14, he talks about being reviled. So this wasn't state-sponsored, systematic persecution. It was local, sporadic persecution that was primarily verbal in the form of being scorned and mocked and vilified. So we've called this kind of a soft persecution or a low-grade persecution. 
So these believers back then were social outcasts being ridiculed and discriminated against simply because they were Christians. And again, I've pointed this out several times in our study of 1 Peter, but it's a striking parallel between that day and our day. I think that that the, the 21st century is more like the first century than any other time in history. And and aligning with Christ is more and more putting us at odds with the culture, makes us a target. So we feel today, the church does, I think more and more the blows of the world and we're singled out in the the public square and we've come under enemy fire. There's myriad examples of this. Let me just give a few in one list that I read. A Sonoma State University student must remove her two-inch tall cross necklace because her supervisor believed it would offend other students. A first grade student in North Carolina is ordered to remove the word God from a poem she was supposed to read on Veterans Day in honor of her two grandfathers who served in Vietnam. A New Jersey school district banned all religious Christmas music, requiring every song at their winter concerts to be secular. An army email labeled pro-family Christian ministries as domestic hate groups, listing them with the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. Uh, Evangelical pastor Louis Giglio was ousted from the 2012 presidential inauguration program because he delivered a sermon back in the 1990s calling the practice of homosexuality a sin. Again, these aren't isolated stories. They're part of a a national trend. Um, I read a book last week called uh, Dark Agenda. Some of you may have read that. It's It's kind of on the bestseller list, I think, now. I'm written by David Horowitz, whose background is Jewish. He's actually himself an agnostic, but he's writing this book. It's called Dark Agenda, The War to Destroy Christian America. And he chronicles the the roots of the war against Christian America and its rapid rise and uh, the things that have brought that about. And it's it's a fascinating book, and I think he's right on target. But I've said all that simply to say that Peter is telling us here this morning, he was telling his readers in in the AD 60s, and to us today the message is, this shouldn't surprise us. Now, the difficulty we face in America, I think, is this. We've had it so good for so long that now this is taking us by surprise. I mean, I hear Christians in America, especially some of us who are older, say things like, I can't believe our country is doing this, or I can't believe this is happening in America. Well, what Peter would say to us this morning is, believe it. Believe it. Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. In other words, this verse should set our expectations as believers in this world. Because when you and I shine in the darkness and we expose uh, the the darkness of sin, there's going to be an inevitable backlash when we call sinful things sinful. And I think the persecution today is seeking to to, uh, eliminate or certainly at least to diminish uh, our voice, to kind of put the squeeze on believers to shut us up or to silence us. And I think that the persecution probably will continue to ratchet up Um, if that's not achieved. But we have to have realistic expectations. Don't be surprised as a believer if you take a stand for the exclusivity of Christ and the ethical, moral teachings of Scripture. Don't be surprised that this world hates you. If we live like Christ and look like Christ and preach Christ's gospel, we will suffer like Christ. Now, the middle of verse 12, I love this. God has a higher purpose, though, in all of this for us. Notice he says, which comes upon you for your testing. 
In other words, God allows these things to refine our faith. The purpose is not to destroy us. The purpose is to develop us. So God allows us to undergo the crucible of suffering, not to disprove our faith, but to prove it. So there's a purpose in our pain. Uh, There's a design um, in our difficulty, and God doesn't waste our suffering. And you and I are to be purged and purified like gold in a furnace as we suffer the the pushback uh, from this culture. So the world seeks to ruin us, but God uses their mistreatment ultimately for His good purposes to refine our lives. So the first thing here, it's a very simple one, that is, you and I need to adjust our expectations in this world in which we live. The second thing we need to do is adjust our emotions. So our second R word here is rejoicing, rejoicing. Notice verse 11, or verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So what he's saying here is don't just endure what's happening, but actually exult in what is happening. Now, he's not saying that we enjoy the suffering, and he's not saying we enjoy or we rejoice because we suffer, but we rejoice that we can suffer for the sake of the one who suffered for us. That's what he says in verse 13, to the degree you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In other words, it's a blessing, it's not a curse. That's what he says in verse 14, you're blessed. So Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when men insult you and, and, and uh, accuse you falsely in all manner because of my name. Philippians 1, Paul says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Salvation has been granted to us. It's also been granted to us as a privilege to suffer for him. So it's a privilege to suffer for the one who suffered for us. I was... Uh, reading through this passage again this morning and thinking about the message, and I thought about a a verse back in Acts chapter 5. Back in the early church, uh, the suffering they endured uh, was was, uh, was serious. But in in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, I was struck by this this morning. It says, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and they released them. So the disciples went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They considered it a privilege and a joy to suffer for the one who had suffered for them. Now notice in verse 14, he says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, and in the Greek, that's a first-class condition, which means it's something assumed to be true. So you could translate it like this, since you are being reviled for the name of Christ. In other words, this was happening. He says, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. And you say, well, you know, realistically, how can you rejoice in times of suffering and difficulty and persecution? What is it that enables us to do that? And he gives us two things in these verses. The first one I call the prospect. I see that in verse 13, where in the middle of the verse, he says, so that also at the revelation of his glory, it's talking about the second coming of Christ, you may rejoice with exaltation. What he's telling us here is, you may suffer now temporarily for a while, but that suffering's going to be followed by glory. Look beyond the, the temporary present suffering to everlasting life. 
fact, in uh, 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says there that we have to suffer now for a little while. In other words, it's just a, a brief period of time, but then after that, there's future glory. So look beyond temporary troubles to everlasting glory that awaits us. I mean, it's, it's the cross that ultimately leads us to the crown. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. There was a man uh, some years ago, some centuries ago, John Harper, who was going to be executed the next day for his faith in Jesus Christ. Several people came to try to comfort him. One man even came and said, look, deny your faith. I mean, he said to him, life is sweet, but death is bitter. John Harper responded to him and said, eternal life is more sweet and the second death is more bitter. There's a man who understood things and had a perspective of what this life is all about in light of the life to come. There's a story I know I've told before about Florence Chadwick. On July the 4th, 1952, a 34-year-old Florence Chadwick waded into the waters of Catalina Island, hoping to swim the 21-mile strait to the shores of California. Now, the water was numbingly cold, and the fog was so thick she couldn't even see the boats that were accompanying her. Um, the, the hours ticked by, and she swam on, but, but 15 hours in, numbed by the cold, and uh, she has to be taken out of the water. And when she was taken out of the water, the fog in the distance lifted a little bit, and she realized she was just half a mile from the shore. And she was so discouraged, she says, if only I had been able to see the shore, I could have made it. Two years later, in the same weather, uh, she made this same swim, and she made it. And she said, I always kept the image of that shoreline in my mind as I was swimming. And one writer says this. He says, when we're discouraged, let's resolve to keep the eternal shoreline in mind. Our eventual triumph is assured. We've read the last chapter of the book, and we know how it all uh, will end. So you and I, when we're suffering... We can look to the prospect of coming glory to give us hope. But the second thing, it's in verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us the moment we put our faith and trust in Christ. And he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. What I think this is saying here, though, is is that when we suffer persecution for Jesus Christ, we sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in a unique way. There's a, there's a heightened sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that he draws near and administers strength and provides an extra measure of his abiding presence with us. So the Spirit rests in a unique way on believers who are suffering for doing the right thing. I'm sure all of you heard a lot of stories from church history about people who were persecuted for their faith in very, uh, very brutal ways. And you always wonder to yourself, how were they able to stand at that time? And one of the reasons I believe is God gives them a, a special grace and a special sense of His presence at that time. The Spirit of glory and of God uh, rests upon you. I think it's closer and more near than any other time. I know I told this story a while back, but it blessed me again this week as I thought about it. It's a story of John Patton. He was a Scottish missionary, went down to the New Hebrides, 
Um, his wife, 19 years of age, died shortly after they got there. Within a month or two, his young child died. Um, he was there. The islands were filled with cannibals. In fact, Charles Spurgeon later called John Patton the king of the cannibals. But he was uh, on the run a lot of the time he was there. They were chasing him, trying to kill him. And I think I, I told this story before how one night a chief came and told him in this village, you better get out of here. They're, they're after you to kill you. So he takes off. He climbs up in a tree and spends the whole night there. All these, these uh, natives are running down underneath this tree looking for him, firing off muskets and all kinds of things. And he says during that time, he says, never in all my sorrow did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. And then he uttered these classic words, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I'll not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. John Patton said, I was alone, but I was not alone. He felt the Lord's presence with him more near than ever in his life. Uh, Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century Scottish uh, Presbyterian. He was banished to Aberdeen, imprisoned there. The night before his trial, um, he, said, he said this happened the night before his trial. He said, Jesus came into my prison cell last night, and every stone flashed like a ruby. He knew the presence of the Lord in a deeper and a greater way than any time in his life. Look, the Lord never leaves us or forsakes us, but I believe in times when we're suffering for our faith, we realize and sense his presence in a heightened way. So look, as, as our culture moves further away from the Lord and we experience more and more backlash and pushback from our culture, the first thing we need to do is get a good dose of realism. Uh, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. The second thing we need to do is rejoice. We need to rejoice in the Lord's presence with us now, but also the prospect of His coming in the future. Uh, the third thing we need to do as opposition increases and intensifies is to reevaluate. Notice what uh, Peter says in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. So he adds this important qualification. And he says, look, if you're being persecuted... Because of your own sinfulness, you need to be embarrassed and ashamed, and you need to expect to suffer for those things. If you commit sin, you're just simply reaping the consequences of something you've sown for yourself. So you deserve what you're getting. So he's simply saying here, make sure you don't suffer for your own faults and your own foolishness. Now, when you look at this list, he says, don't suffer as a murderer. We all know what that is. And by the way, Christians must be able to commit these sins, right? We wouldn't list them here. He says, don't suffer as a Christian, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Now, that's the only time that word troublesome meddler is one word in Greek. It's the only time it's in the New Testament. And it means simply to meddle in other people's business. And a lot of people just look at it as kind of the, what we think of as somebody who's a busybody. But what's listed with some pretty bad stuff here, isn't it? Murderers and thief and evildoer. I think in this context, it means more than just being a busybody. I think what it looks at is what we might call today an agitator. You know, sometimes when uh, years ago when unions would go on strike, they would have people who were agitators who would go out and stir things up and kind of get in people's faces. And they would kind of badger and bait people, if you will, into conflict. And so what I think he's saying here is, 
as believers, we don't want to invite the hostility of the culture unnecessarily. We don't want to be out there baiting and badgering people who don't conform to Christian standards and have an excessive zeal in attacking and opposing unbelievers. In other words, don't go out and unnecessarily pour fuel on the fire. You know, we're not the majority anymore in our culture, if we ever were. Maybe culturally, Christianity was a majority. But we don't want to become an angry, vindictive minority. We don't want to be angry, agitated Christians. We don't want to make the gospel any more offensive than it already is. Look, you and I need to have courage. We need to stand for the gospel in this culture in which we live. But we need to be prudent and be proportionate in the way we do that. We need to be careful not to roll up all the culture war issues and politics with the gospel so that what people really are responding against is not the gospel, but a lot of other things that have been rolled in with it. And so a lot of times what he's saying here is don't suffer as an agitator who's out there pouring fuel on the fire. It's like a story I heard about a a man in a church, and he was having really bad problems in his marriage. He went to the pastor, and he said, man, my wife is just, we're having all kinds of problems, and she gets so, so upset. He says, you know, she'll just totally lose control and curse and throw things, and it's terrible. Can you you help me? So the pastor says, well, sure. And he says, well, let's let's go over to my house and see if we can help out. So they get over to the house, and uh, the man uh, gets ready to go in, and he tells the pastor, he says, well, you wait here on the front porch for a minute. And the pastor says, well, why do you want me to wait here? He says, well, I need to go in and get her started. And that's the way it is, tragically, in our culture a lot of times. Sometimes we get things started. We're, we're agitators in the culture. We don't want to be that way. And sometimes we complain about the culture, but we started it really sometimes by our own unwise meddling and agitation. Uh, verse 16, he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, uh, this is one of only three times you have the word Christian in the New Testament. Um, it's found in Acts 11 and Acts 26. And originally, it's interesting, this word was used by enemies of Christianity as a term of reproach and an insult to believers. It was used as a slur. It meant those of, the, those of Christ's party or a Christ one or someone who belongs to Christ. And of course, we bear this name proudly today of Christian, one who follows Christ. But he says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. So never be embarrassed or ashamed if you suffer uh, for the name uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, verses 17 and 18, Peter goes on, and the gist of these verses is this. What these verses are saying that, What we suffer now as believers in the midst of a culture that's against God and against Christ is serious, but it's nothing compared to what unbelievers will face someday when the Lord comes. It's an argument in these verses, 17 and 18, an argument from the lesser to the greater, or or Jews called it an argument from the light to the heavy. And he's saying, look, we do suffer now. We suffer uh, persecution as believers, and, and uh, we suffer the uh, uh, mocking and the maligning of the culture. But he's saying, look, that's nothing compared to what unbelievers are going to suffer in the future. He's going to say the end of verse 17, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Someone said it like this years ago, if you have to choose between a smooth flight with a crash landing 
were a bumpy flight with a safe landing. Opt for the bumpy flight. That's true. Look, our lives may be bumpy as believers in this culture. We're promised a safe landing. Unbelievers may have a a nice smooth flight through this life, at least as far as the culture is concerned, but they're in for a crash landing in the end. What will happen to those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, Stephen Cole, uh, a man who used to pastor a church in Arizona, he says this, if God uses such severe trials to purge sin from the righteous, if the process of salvation is that difficult, think of how much worse the day of judgment will be for the godless and the sinners. So if you're tempted to bail out of the faith when you encounter trials, ask yourself, where else will I go? There's nowhere else to go. When he says in verse 18, it's with difficulty the righteous are saved, he doesn't mean here that it's hard to put your faith in Jesus or, he, or that it's going to be hard for Jesus to bring you to heaven or that the outcome is uncertain, when he says it's with difficulty the righteous are saved, he's referring to the difficult struggle of the road that ultimately leads to salvation. Saying it's a a difficult road in this life that ultimately leads to us being saved. Colin Smith has a a book on 1 Peter. Um, He wrote this in there this week. This encouraged me. He said, when you came to Christ, you may have thought your troubles were over. But now you've found that there are more struggles going on in your soul than ever before. That's the surest sign you're on the right path. A Christian is like a a fish swimming upstream. You're going against the currents of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Any dead fish can float with the current of the river, but it takes life and strength and energy to go against the stream. It's not easy to overcome a sin you've struggled with for many years. It's not easy to maintain your passion for serving Christ throughout a lifetime. It's not easy to see others enjoying a blessing that God did not give to you. But your continuing struggle through the difficulty of all these things is the evidence you're going in the right direction. I love that. He says, look, it's with difficulty that the righteous are saved. But if that's true, what's going to be the outcome for the godless man and the sinner? So that's the point he's making here, and it's an encouragement to us who are believers to endure suffering faithfully, but it's also a sober warning for anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ. Well, the fourth key to here to living in a hostile culture is in verse 19. It's the, the fourth R word here, the word reliance. Therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word entrust there is a banking term that means to deposit something for safekeeping. So what he's saying here is give your soul into the safekeeping of God and bank on him. And of course, Jesus is our example of this. When he was on the cross suffering unjustly, he said, Father, into your hands I commit. Same Greek word. Into your hands I entrust uh, my spirit. And in 1 Peter 2.23, it says that Jesus, when he was suffering, entrusted his soul to the one who judges rightly. So when it comes to trials, one thing that you and I are to do is deposit ourselves into the safekeeping of God. And understand that that deposit is going to yield eternal dividends. And he calls God here in verse 19 the creator. Again, this is the only time in the New Testament that God is called the creator. 
Now, we find the verb created, we find the word creation, but we don't find the word creator used except in this passage. And I think Peter uses this word here, that God is the faithful creator, because he's wanting to highlight the ability of God to care for us no matter what happens if we entrust ourselves to him. So as the creator, he's the one who gives life, he's the one who governs life. This speaks of his complete, comprehensive sovereignty over all things. So he's saying, look, the the Lord that we trust, the one that we entrust our soul to, is the architect of the ages. He's the one that that upholds the heavens and the earth. He feeds the birds and the beasts. He, He numbers the hairs on our head. And he'll watch over us if we commit our souls to him. We must trust in him. There's an old saying I heard years ago that you can't talk about standing on the rock of ages and then act as if you're clinging to your last piece of driftwood. And I think that's the way a lot of Christians are today. We talk about standing on the rock of ages, but when troubles come, we look like we're just hanging on to our last piece of driftwood. He says here, look, put your faith in the faithfulness of God. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. God, the majestic, infinite, glorious one who spoke everything that exists into into being. He can be trusted with your todays and your tomorrows and with mine. So in a world of, of shifting tides and gathering storms, it's a great blessing to have an anchor that's placed in and anchored in the hope of our faithful creator. I like what Erwin Lutzer says. He he says, we must cling to what is immovable when everything that has been nailed down is being torn up. A lot of stuff being torn up that's been nailed down. And you and I in that time must cling to what is immovable. We cling to our faithful creator. So entrust your soul to him. Entrust your life to him. Entrust your uh, family to him. Entrust your future uh, to him for safekeeping. As Christians, we must bank on the faithfulness of God to care for us and to see us through. By the way, let me say this this morning. It may be that you've never entrusted your soul to God for the very first time. You've entrusted your soul to yourself, and you're trying to take care of things on your own. The Bible tells us that the only way that we can get to heaven is by entrusting our eternal destiny and salvation to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that one mediator between God and man, the one who came and died for us, the one who rose again. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, For I'm I'm, I'm convinced that that He is able to uh, keep what I've committed unto Him against that day. And what we commit to Him is our soul, our eternal destiny. And if you've never for the first time entrusted yourself to Him, That's what you need uh, to do here this morning as we pray here in just a moment. But look, for all of us here, the winds of change are blowing in our country. We all see it. We all feel it. It's there. There's an increasing hostility to the Christian faith and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, to me, as I read this passage and studied it this week, I was struck again and again with how up-to-date the Bible is. It's exactly what we face today. And it gives us these four keys, realism, We need to be realistic about this. We need to understand that this is the way it is in this world and not be surprised by it. We need to rejoice because we have the the prospect of glory and we have the presence of God's Spirit with us now. We need to reevaluate and make sure we're not suffering for things we're doing wrong. Make sure we're not agitators out there in the culture. 
And we need to rely upon the faithful Creator and entrust our souls and bank on Him as the one who can ultimately see us through. May God help us uh, to do this in these days in which we live. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you've never entrusted your soul to Christ, I pray that you'll do that even now, right as we pray. You'll come to God and realize that you need a Savior, that you need someone to wash away your sins. And you'll come and entrust your soul and your eternal destiny to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Father, for those of us here this morning who know you, I pray that we would continually be putting our faith in a faithful God. And Father, that you will sustain us by your Spirit and you'll fill us with joy even in the midst of difficulty and struggle in this life, even as we witness a a culture that's becoming darker and more corrupt all the time. That you'll fill us with a great sense of joy, Father, in the knowledge of your coming and your presence. Father, I pray especially today here for for young people and children growing up in this church. As they face this culture we've talked about here today, Father, maybe the full brunt of it, Father, strengthen them and sustain them. I pray that they'll hear these words this morning and your spirit will take them and apply them to their lives. Father, those of us who are a little bit further down the road in the spiritual life, that we can be an example uh, to them and have influence and impact on their lives as they see us living out these realities in our lives in the midst of this culture. So, Father, I pray for all of us here. I pray for Faith Bible Church, that we will continue to stand upon the rock of ages, trust in you, come what may. Father, we thank you that we can bank on you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.